The views and opinions expressed on Analyze This are entirely those of the on-air participants and do not reflect those of the station's board, management, staff, or underwriters. And we're back here. I analyze this. And before I bring in uh, the Commissioner of Department of Planning and Natural Resources, Mr. John, Commissioner John Pierre Oriol, let me um, do some programming notes uh, for tonight on WTJX. The news hour at 7 p.m. At 8 p.m., the 88th annual Ainsfield Wolf Book Awards, hosted by Henry Louis Gates, and they explore the personal stories of the 2023 recipients. Finding Your Roots comes on at 9. Explore the ancestry of actors LeVar Burton and Wes Studi. And then at 10 p.m., right, Tutankham, explore the mysteries of King Tut's, right, life and burial on the centennial of his tomb's opening. Okay, that's from 10 to 11. And then another one, right, Tutankham again, uh, explore further mysteries and his historical inconsistencies behind King Tut's life and burial, right, Tutankham, right? So that's uh, two editions of that uh, from 10 to 12. And, of course, I'm a important company at midnight, Typically at 11, but time turned back in November. So now it's a midnight deal, right? So news hour at 7, 88th annual Ainsfield Wolf Book Awards at 8, Finding Your Roots at 9, and then two editions of Tatankam, right? At 10 to 10 to 11, and then uh, 11 to 12, right? And then one of my listeners, one of my, my people, my mentor, right? He sent me a text. He said, we need to have a discussion about that one day, guys. They don't get a pass because they shape their thinking and to this day have enjoyed privilege. And he was referring to Jerry Jones, right? The conversation doing and I were having. And my response, I'm going to read my response. I'm going to say, excuse me, my mentor. I'm of the take that anyone of any color is less mature and less responsible as a teenager as they would be as an adult. Said pass is a human application due to age does not justify racism notwithstanding. That's all I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we look at things uh, differently when we're young and as teenagers, and uh, he, made a mis- he made a mistake. And he followed in, he paid, and then peer pressure. We don't know. You know what I'm saying? So things happen, right? Now it's for him to, you know, come correct and, and tell the truth. You know, so hopefully, you know, if he hasn't done that yet, because I don't think he ever responded to the photo. You know what I'm saying? Uh, he believes that because he got money, he don't have to. That's unfortunate. But I do want to say, though, you know, I did things that I regretted when I was a teenager that I wouldn't even consider doing now. Why? Because I got a better understanding of life and a bit more mature. That's all that I'm saying. Does not justify a racist mentality in any way, shape, or form. Having said that, I want to uh, welcome back to the show uh, the Commissioner from the Department of Planning and Natural Resources, uh, Sir John Pierre Oriol. Uh, good morning, Commissioner. Welcome to Analyze This once again. Good morning, Senator, and good morning uh, to all your listeners. Happy New Year to all of you. Yes, yes, and we're going gonna, gonna to remain new for a little bit longer, and then before, mm-hmm. you, know, before you know it, we're heading towards 2025. How you been, man? How's everything? Not too bad, not too bad. I had a enjoyable holiday season, um, actually unplugged uh, for about two weeks. Um, you know, didn't... didn't uh, travel with my laptop, everything, I figured if, if I'm going to do it, 
the best time to do it is in the holidays where we're in the part of the slowest part of the period, you know? So I uh, got to enjoy some good family time. Uh, and like Re- I said, had a very pleasant holiday. You're, you're recalibrated. You're ready for a productive 2024? That's where we're going. That's where we're going. That's what I'm talking about. For those who are listening for the first time, um, give the people some background about Jean-Pierre Oriol. Um, well, Jean-Pierre Oriol is from St. Thomas. Uh, he's a graduate of the uh, All Saints Cathedral High School, the class of 95. Um, I earned my degree in biology uh, from Brandeis University. Um, and then just started working with the department in uh, June of 2000. I started off as an environmental inspector. Just, you know, early on, the, the, I saw the privilege of being in the role that I was simply because I was somebody who knew he didn't want to be in an office full time. And, uh, and somebody decided that they would pay me to wear a mask and snorkel. So I thought that was even better, you know. Um, but over the years, what I've seen is that um, you know, DPNR and all the mandates that we have is here to, to protect the way of life that we have here in the territory. Um, a lot of everything that we do is re- rooted in our environment and our natural and our cultural resources, whether that's from our economy um, and the tourism benefits that, that the tourism that our natural resource provides those benefits for. Um, to our own personal way of life in relaxing and enjoying all that Mother Nature has provided. And so, um, you know, over the years, I grew to accept that being home, this is something that I wanted to do uh, and, you know, want to make sure now that for the generations that follow, including my two little ones, that uh, we continue to have that way of life and, and making it better, particularly for our people. So that, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Now, Brandeis University, this, this is in Massachusetts. Where in Massachusetts is this relative to Boston? Uh, it's about 20 minutes west of Boston, um, just outside. It, it's really like the suburbs of Boston. Okay, so suburban, suburban Boston. What, what was that experience like coming from a, a Catholic school in the VA to going to a, a school up in a, a private school up in, a, up in New England? You know, so um, about three weeks after I actually started college, we got hit by um, Hurricane Maryland. And at the time, it was very hard. You know, we didn't have cell phones as prevalent as we do now. And and I was ready to come home. Uh, Not only just to be able to help out my parents, uh, since we uh, had absorbed some devastating losses, but then also just because, you know, it, it started snowing in October in Boston. <laughs> so there's there's cold and then there's real cold and then you get one month of sun in like July. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, you know, like the day I graduated, it was Memorial Day weekend in May and uh, it was 42 degrees that day. So <laughs> you're just waiting for the sun to come out. Um, <laughs> were you up there? At, were there any Nor'easters up there uh, during, your, during your four years up there? There actually was a couple. Um, you know, we, I, I'll never forget my first Christmas from returning back to school. There we got hit by a nor'easter maybe a couple of days before I came home. And there was like nine feet, 10 feet of snow just piled up 
uh, out in the, at the school itself. Um, got hit later on in April of 96. I mean, it was April 1st. We got hit by a nor'easter. All kinds of classes got canceled that day. So, um, you know, and then we had also the polar opposite in 97. It was just a crazy La Nina experience. It was mid-February, and it was 90 degrees for a week. What? Because of La Nina. Yep. Mid-February. So, um it it was a truly amazing experience and and when you know back in the 90s that we we called it uh you know people were talking about global warming but no it was complete climate change at that point so i i it could I, go, I, it could go either way no no hold on a second i, I you know I, I i'm a junkie and kind of nerdy in that regard are you telling me that in february i had 90 degree weather in in new england yes we did. Wow. And I remember one of the one of the craziest things was how many news stories had to continuously run because people thought that it was ninety degrees that they could go to the ocean. And the water does not cool that I mean it does not warm up that fast. So mm-hmm. they have to continue but they had several people who went to the beach, get really hot, lose their mind, went in the water. Uh, and hypothermia, everything. So it, it freeze. Uh, yep, yeah, exactly. So okay, I look, but I, it it did, it did. I looking up. I look. I look. I looking at this now. This 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 is wild, Mister. Nineteen ninety seven. Where where February and 90, 90 degrees. I know that um, uh, Christmas around Christmas and New Year's in in New York, it was like fifty degrees, fifty five, sixty degrees. They couldn't believe it up in up in New England. So and that was considered warm. You telling me in February, which is the heart of the the winter season, that they were in the nineties in nineteen ninety seven. Wow. Just one. But that was a very extreme La Nina event at that point. Wow, so. wow, and that of course is 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 uh, uh, you had uh, that would be that would be a southern tropical blast worked its way up in uh, up in that up in that region. Something like that, yeah. Wow, wow. So you know about this thing, man? You you went you experience you experience climate change or global warming, wherever they want to use, and 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 you're now uh, the commissioner of uh, Department of Planning and Natural Resources, where you're looking at, at dynamics like this all the time, right? Um, we are, we are, um, particularly um, as it relates to our coral reefs, uh, and then also. Um, we're looking at the situation that the territory has been in over the last several years where um, we've been under major drought conditions for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we are working with our partners at UVI as well as um, the U.S. Geological Survey, and we're trying to get uh, the, the Department of Interior's Bureau of Reclamation, and we're trying to do more water inventory um, studies here in the territory. And then uh, as part of our watershed plan work, we've also identified some areas where we can have some storage, some natural storage and man-made storage so that we can provide in times of major drought like uh you know con- i think they go by condition condition four condition five um where you know 
back in 2015, we had that situation where the drought was so bad, you even started seeing, like, all of the uh, palm trees in the territory were bending over and suffering. You had a lot of cattle loss. Um, The mangroves out in Great Pond had turned, like, this Pepto-Bismol pink um, from, uh, uh, you know, just too much carbon infiltration, not enough oxygen, not enough water. And so um, we're trying to identify or have identified in certain areas where we can create some storage and at least, at the very least, be able to provide some relief assistance for agriculture and the uh, farmers being able to feed livestock, um, people being able to water their crops. And, and we also have some additional type of ideas for tertiary treatment and storage where, um, you know, if we partner, say, with businesses that have massive, massive parking lots, let's use, you know, Home Depot as an example. But you can, we can actually create storage underneath the parking lot system and then take that water and then do some preliminary treatments and then make it available for watering crops and those types of things. Um, there's, a, there's actually a location on uh, St. Croix at the, um, the RT Park at the university where there's, uh, I think it's 150,000 gallons of storage underneath the parking area that exists right now. Yeah. So, uh, it, it's something similar to that is where we want to identify different locations where, you know, we, we just have to look and be ready for increased periods of drought and how are we going to have additional storage? Well, we had mentioned that drought last week uh, on my show. Uh, at the time, you know, I was a Senate president. Uh, the 2015 drought and Vice President um, Janet Mellon Young, uh, she had moved... I think she was the she was uh, the chair chair of economic development and agriculture, and she had moved an appropriation. Things had gotten so bad that we had to move on a, a significant appropriation for water uh, to support our farmers and uh, those who were um, adversely impacted because of the drought. Because some of these droughts, um, even last year, these droughts um, they could extend for a very long time, Commissioner. Correct, and and that's the thing is that we we tend to think about it as oh well, we get two or three days in a row of rain, so the drought is over. But when you're looking at it over the calendar year and you're seeing what was the length of time without rain or under three inches or something like that, you're having what we call these micro droughts, and those accumulate into major disaster scenarios as well. Well, that's why you got to, you know, that's why we encourage people, right? Uh, just in, with, with everything, look at the body of work. Don't look at a snapshot, right? Because snapshots could be misleading. You got to look at things over an, over an extended period of time to see true comprehensive impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, those are the types of things now, too, that we're trying to look at, particularly when it comes to our building codes and, you know, and particularly for St. Thomas and St. John, um, you know, where, where our public distribution of water isn't all over the islands, it only really touches about 30%. And so we have to make sure that as we move forward in planning for climate change, do we need to look at the volume that we have for water storage, the, 
the ratio that we have for your roof area to your cistern area to ensure that for long term, that if you do get into a scenario of no rain for three months, then what exactly are, are we doing? So um, it, it's just one of those things that we've, we've been looking at now, I, I would say for the last four or five years, in trying to determine that because we also have to weigh what the cost of installing a cistern is, uh, which is extremely expensive. And then now, if we're not going to say, okay, we increase the surface area or make your volume more, then where do we recommend, say, having the additional storage on your property or something like that to be able to help? Um, and, and those are the types of things that we're also looking at. No, I remember um, last year, 4th of July uh, weekend, was, it was actually a, a Emancipation Day on a Monday and uh, Independence Day on a Tuesday. So we had like a four-day weekend. But the Thursday and Friday before that, we, we had gotten some heavy rain, which was uh, June 29th and then Friday, June 30th. And my friend, uh, uh, Hannibal O'Brien, uh, he was on my show on the 30th. Uh, and he came on uh, the day after. We had the heavy rain on the 29th. And he said, you know, the island on green already, right? Now, now what it is about, about St. Croix, why we could turn green with a little bit of rain, uh, Komish? Uh, normally, I mean, normally it's a bit two, three days. Now it's a one-day deal, and this place gone from brown to green? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, particularly your, your tropical vegetation, I mean, it just soaks up that water so much, mm -hmm. you know? And, I mean, it it looks really pretty, but that doesn't mean that they're still Correct. not in bad health. Correct. Correct. That, that could be misleading. You know what I'm saying? But uh, uh, because we had gone through a drought last year as well. and uh, But that rain, that rain actually green up the island. And uh, we always want to see the island green. Ain't no doubt about that. We got Commissioner Jean-Pierre Oriel uh, joining us from the Department of Planning and Natural Resources. Uh, the Governor's State of the Territory takes place on Monday. Uh, January 22nd. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, the department and uh, its vision uh, in line with what the governor uh, will be uh, addressing the Senate and the public at large uh, in another six days. Be back right after this. Fresh start. The Bank of St. Croix provides in-person service, personal and business checking accounts, online banking, and mobile apps for banking on the go, a nonprofit community investment checking account, and a 24-hour banking cash management platform. There are two locations, one in Gallus Bay and one in Peter's Rest. The Bank of St. Croix has something for everyone. Contact a customer service specialist for details regarding our nonprofit community investment checking account. Member FDIC. Music can be an incredibly personal experience. A song can inspire you, it can comfort you, it can make you feel understood, it can even take you back to a specific moment in your life. And it all begins with the artist. Join me, Raina Duras, as I get personal through in-depth interviews with your favorite musicians and find out where those songs come from on World Cafe. Weekdays at 10 p.m. 
on WTJX FM 93.1. Saturday mornings, we're here for you with Weekend Edition. Two hours of news, interviews, new music, new books, rattling good stories, interesting people, challenging analysis, laughs, air shows, and donkey rides for the kids. So come along with us. Weekend Edition, Saturday mornings from NPR News. Weekend Edition, Saturdays at 8 a.m. on WTJX FM 93.1. PBS NewsHour has a rich legacy of in-depth reporting and strong storytelling. Only four people have sat in that chair before us, and the enormity of this moment is not lost on me. People turn to us because they know they can hear from trusted sources of information and news. That won't change a bit, even as the faces behind the desk change. Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Nabaz. Weekdays at 7 p.m. on WTJX-TV, Channel 12. Back here, I analyze this, and um, we're talking with uh, Commissioner Jean-Pierre Oriol uh, from the Department of Planning and Natural Resources. Good morning once again, Commissioner. Glad to have you on. Morning. Good morning again, everyone. Good. Uh, Commissioner, before we, we talk um, visionary um, um, in, in, in advance of uh, uh, the governor's uh, sixth state to the territory, I want to go back a little bit uh, to last year. Uh, we've learned here and analyze this in talking with the weather service that our hottest months in the Virgin Islands are September and October, right? Unlike the mainland, which is uh, July and August, right? And we had some situ- we had a situation um, last year where oppressive heat um, forced uh, the Department of Education and other entities um, to actually, you know, ask the chair of them to stay home because it, it, it was it was that bad. And we had seen this trend. Um, because on the mainland last year, they had ridiculous days of um, just unbelievable heat. Like I remember I'd come out on the show and uh, looking at, well, of course, you know, um, Phoenix, uh, Arizona being in the Valley of the Sun. Um, that's extreme. But they had over 110 degrees, 30 consecutive days, just wild numbers. At the same time, in the Northeast, you had crazy rain going on. Um, it was it was just uh, madness. What was that like working uh, with interagency collaboration um, to get to the point where the Department of Education had to say, you know, something we're looking at, you know, this data, and we got to protect the people from themselves. We got to protect each other from ourselves. What was that like um, in October of 2023? September yeah, so, and October. So I mean it. It, it is something that we we did discuss, particularly um, there when it comes to education, and they they have just an amazing uh, amount of data that they have to process on a daily basis because you know they're spread out throughout three different islands, multiple scenarios, and thousands and thousands of people, and so and they also need to make decisions very early on because you know the last thing that we want is i read parents to 
have kids get ready for school and then all of a sudden you have to cancel a day. So, um, but I, I, you know, a large factor that went into those things also was the conditions of the schools mm-hmm. and and um, air conditioning systems. I mean, you know, they got to a point where there were no air conditioning systems available throughout any of the islands because Department of Education had been doing what they could in, from the summer to try and get those classrooms ready. But there was a supply shortage. And so, um, again, just being able to have, uh, you know, not only your students, but everywhere. Because, uh, you know, like I, I have 100 plus, you know, I have 150 people in our offices across the territory as well. And, and um, making sure people are comfortable, not in excessive heat, those types of things is just how we have to go. And, and there, you know, a lot of people, let's say my age, grew up going to high school in the early 90s. We didn't have no AC and everything like that. But you know what? It wasn't 90 degrees every day when I was in school in September and October. That's even. right. That's right. And so, you know, whatever those conditions were that we recall when we were in high school, those conditions are not the same conditions. Um, and... And the Department of Health has, you know, um, the Department of Education also works with the Department of Health. They work nationally with uh, uh, different advisories for how to handle situations like these. Because whether you're in the Northeast or down in the Southern states as well, all of them experience certain scenarios, share that information. And so um, the, the fact that we have the ability to go into a virtual learning mode I think also allows us to make quicker decisions because you're not losing a day anymore of instruction because they have equipped students with the tools necessary. They have done the trainings for the teachers. And and this is probably going to be something uh, until all the schools are, you know, new or refurbished completely and have, uh, functional AC and everything, that that this is probably going to be something that we'll see over the next few years just as as it relates to climate scenarios as well. So there were um, some things that we learned from the pandemic, as we were saying. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the ability to... The, the ability to have people continuing to work and work remotely, like you're, you're seeing a shift across multiple workforces right now, education, everything. So, um, you know, as, as these programs have become more and more efficient, um, people see them also as ways to cut costs, like, for example, uh, business meetings, the number of them you now are seeing shrink because people can meet uh, virtually and those types of things. That was all accelerated. I mean, we were heading in that direction, but all of that was accelerated by the pandemic. Without sure. a doubt. Without, without a doubt. Now, uh, last year during the um, State of the Territory, uh, the governor mentioned wanting to, uh, I'll use the right word here, uh, identify and redevelop um, buildings in the town areas, uh, the downtown areas um, throughout the territory. Um, 
shout out to Mali. Um, historic, like uh, Christian said, Frederick said, and, and Cruz Bay. Um, has there been any steps in that direction? Uh, you are, and I just, I just got, uh, I got a text message here that allows for me to, to sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, you are the Virgin Islands State Historic Preservation Officer. Right? That comes with yeah. the gig, right? Yeah. That comes with the gig. Yep. Comes with the gig. Uh, comes with the gig. So uh uh what's that like? Because you know, I you know, I, I, I enjoy doing some mercenary work for the RT Park that you just mentioned a little while ago. And you know, there's a project that we're looking at, um in identifying, you know, like G. Antonio Javis school, a couple other buildings, what have you. What's the deal uh in in line with what the governor mentioned last year at the state of the territory in identifying buildings that we could uh refurbish, redevelop? Repurpose. So, so the you know, um, I think the first thing that we have to do is understand why. Because the, the so the governor put out the legislation for the people to review uh, after the series of town halls, and what we are seeing is still there is a hesitation or that there is a conversation in the public that somehow, some way. This legislation is leaning towards a land grab for people. And the legislation that the governor has put forward suggests no transfer of property whatsoever. And so one of the things that I think we have to do is try and understand why people feel that this is going to be a land grab when there is no transfer of property. Well, there's an education component that comes with everything, Commissioner. For sure, for sure. But this, there, to me, the discussion is, it's, it's beyond, and uh, to me, it's, it's beyond an education component. Um, it's, it's a matter of, uh, it's a matter of trust, and, you know, we can get. Well, you know that in, in every in every jurisdiction, you have you know two three percent of people them who take the most extreme position get traction and run with it. Yeah. So, I mean, but we can have 50, 60, 70, you know, lawyers, lawyers who focus on probate, everything go out and, and review this legislation and provide people, you know, independently from the government why this is a good idea. And again, this is not something that has not happened before. Uh, the office of the governor used examples from multiple jurisdictions in the states where this was applied the the difference between it now and one of the things that when i talk about it um i i make sure that i highlight this point one of the funding sources or the major funding source for this to take place is our hud funding and hud funding is for Low in low to very low to moderate income person, mm-hmm. and it's primarily for housing, with some uh, some influence on, on businesses as well. But it's primarily for housing. Like you can develop more than just housing in a community, but you have to show that housing is your number one thing that you're trying to do. But it says, it, but 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 it, it it is housing and urban development. So there has there has to be that complementary piece to the housing because you just don't want to build homes and don't have the other facets that are necessary for 
you know, folks to, to, to mature and, and, and to actually experience life, the better, the, the better aspects. Yeah. All of it. And so let's say, let's say if, and it's just like you said, Neville, a healthy, healthy community has housing and urban development mm. taking place in it. Yeah. And the fact that it's HUD funding means that that has to demonstrate that it's going to a certain population. Those that are, uh, th- those that express the most need for your low to very low and moderate income mm-hmm. down here, particularly, that's people making you know St. Thomas. I believe it's fifty-two thousand or less. So the the idea is that the the idea or the discussion that we hear about oh well we're going to refurbish it and uh, rent these places out for high amounts of rent or it's not going to be for local people and all of that. How? Because the fact that we're using HUD funding clamps us into primarily developing these things for the people of the Virgin Islands who live here and, and are in these income brackets. And, and I try to, to stress that every time I talk about this because, um, again, it, 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 it would be different if you're, like, using tax credits and those types of things where they come with less controls. But, but no, like you're, we're focusing on using HUD funding and there's going to be probably some other sources, but the primary funding mechanism right now is the HUD funding, which means that it's going to go towards low income, moderate income families. Um, what about but in, in, in that vein, one of the things that DPNR is doing again, that we don't have enough money to, to redevelop all the towns. But we have a, a, a project right now that we've been working on for the last several years, uh, five years, and it's giving two grants up to $200,000 for people who experience damage um, from the storms. And uh, we have 56 awardees. Uh, not all of them are getting 200000 but the idea is that they all lived in the town, in these districts, and then now we're providing them uh, with no match required up to 200000 to refurbish their homes uh, and, and get those properties back into usable condition. Um, we're excited that we're partnering um, with the EDA um, on this, uh, particularly... Uh, to do the, those work in the towns. And then we also are partnering with um, ODR because one of the, one of the problems with this, this particular funding source is that it requires, um, it's a reimbursement program. But if, again, if you're dealing with low to moderate income families, 200000 is a very difficult thing for them to obtain. And so... Uh, ODR is actually going to be serving as the fiduciary putting up the money and then we reimburse them after expenses are made. Um, but it's been a long, long process getting this program. I think so far we've had 18 awardees, um, but we're starting next month. We're going to see a lot more rolling out and a lot more shovels in the ground um, once uh, some of these other awards are made, and the the National Park Service from you know National uh, Washington D.C. has to approve all of the awards even after DPNR has made the final determination on the awardees, and that that has been a slow process. 
uh, and again, being a reimbursement program. But we're, we're doing our part to, to start that conversation and, or start to show what that would look like, redeveloping the towns, putting that investment back in there and, and letting people who have property in those areas thrive and succeed let me ask and this eliminate question. the blight. Let, let, let me ask this question. This, um, CDBG um, falls under your agency as well? Or is now completely the uh, Housing Finance Authority? It is Housing Finance Authority with a portion of it is now been delegated to um, the Office of Disaster Recovery. No, back in the day, your agency used to come down and, and, and make the, rep- the presentation on behalf uh, of the recipients to the legislature, right? Used to be DPNR? So that was pre 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 Oriole. Pre Oriole. Yeah. Very, very far back. But C D B G has been in uh HFA now, I wanna say for the for the better part of uh, over ten years mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, but there was um, a time there was a time when DPNR had stewardship yes. over over um the C D B G. Right. That's correct. CDBG was a program within DPNR, and that's a community development block grant, right? And and and, yes. and that was you would award, um, or or those monies will be awarded to entities, um, for the purposes of what you were articulating just a little while ago. Yes, and they they they're competitive. For, they're still the regular CDBG program. Um, uh, the the program I believe it gets. About two point three million dollars a year, and so they they run a competitive grant program. They they put out a call for proposals, uh, and then those proposals are reviewed by the staff at at uh, VIHFA. They're recommended projects are recommended for approval, and then they are are brought to the board to be finalized. Good. That's what I'm talking about. We got uh, Commissioner Jean Pierre Oriol joining us. When we come back, we're going to talk about our libraries. Talk about projects, um, actual physical projects uh, under his uh, uh, stewardship uh, as commissioner of DPNR. And also talk about what he would like to hear from the governor uh, on Monday. Um, that when he when the speech done, he go get up and smile and, and, and walk out uh, of uh, the legislature uh, on Monday night. We'll take a break and be back right after this. going on, it can be hard to keep up with who's doing what and why. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition Sunday, letting you know whether it's news from across the country and the world, or a deep conversation about a novel, movie, or music, we got you. Grab your coffee or your earbuds and tune in to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Sundays at 8 a.m. right here on WTJX FM, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. Hi, I'm Peter Sagal. You spent the week listening to the news. Don't you think you deserve to show off what you've learned on Wait, Wait, We Give You a Chance to Impress Your Friends with Your Knowledge of International Incidents, Political Gaffes, and the Latest Advancement in German Nudists? You'll be the life of the party or the death. Either way, you'll make an impression and you can thank Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. 
Saturdays at 1 p.m. and Sundays at 2 p.m. right here on WTJX FM 93.1, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. Ah, sometimes you need a moment to just step back, relax, and listen to your favorite song. I'm Raina Duris, and on the next World Cafe, maybe I can help you find something new to love or maybe remind you of something you've been missing. There's so much music out there to enjoy. So take a moment, take a breath, and tune in to World Cafe. Weekdays at 10 p.m. on WTJX FM 93.1. So I spent the past year trying to figure out what news design for 21st century humans might look like. One of the things that really stuck with me was that we now know that humans actually need hope to get up in the morning. And I don't think as a journalist, I ever thought about it that way. We're always looking for new and better ways to understand the world we live in. That's On Point with me, Meghna Chakrabarty. Weekdays at 1 p.m. on WTJX FM 93.1, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. And we're back here and analyze this great discussion with um, Commissioner Jean-Pierre Oriol from the Department of Planning and Natural Resources uh, uh, joining us um, from the Rock Morning. Commissioner, glad to have you on. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks again. Morning to everybody. Catholic school child, you say, right? Parochial school child, right? Parochial school child. Yeah, that makes both of us. I'm an Episcopalian now. So, uh, you know, sorry about that. St. Don stands... I, I went to Episcopal school. That's what I'll say it was. <laughs> oh, that's right. I, I, I myself yeah. uh, Roman Catholic. Okay, <laughs> okay. You graduate from Arsene so, or St. Peter and Paul? Arsene. So you're a Viking then? Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> you graduate, you graduate with, um, let me see, 10 years after my schoolmate, Kenny Benjamin, graduated from Arsene uh, in 1985. Yep. Yeah. See, so. You know Kenny, right? So, yeah, absolutely. You got to know Kenny too. I didn't pretty much the same the same field, yeah. And uh, we went to University of Miami together and uh back in the day. You you were still let me say ten years, you was second grade. You're just coming out of second grade, you're a baby. Something like that. <laughs> anyway, glad to have you on. Congrats on your ascension uh through the ranks. Um because you are a DPNR homer, aren't you? I, I am. This is uh I'm actually currently in my 25th year in the department. That's congratulations on, on that regard. On that, uh, uh, and, and I'm glad that you said that. You know. um, people will think that because you started in 2000 and you're there in, in 2024 that uh, this is your 24th year. But no, you got to include the year 2000 itself, right? Correct. So you include that year and then you add 24 more to it. So you're in your 25th, 24th year. You will complete 25 years at the end of this year. Quickly. Yeah. Um, sargasm, before we get to the libraries, how, how are we dealing with sargasm? Anything innovative? Um, I mean, we, we see there's a couple of companies that are out there in the Caribbean trying to, um, they're, they're taking the sargasm, they're bailing it, and they're sinking it as, uh, to serve as like a blue carbon sink. Um, that's, to me, very labor intensive. I don't know, like, 
as a nonprofit that they're they're doing it as a nonprofit throughout the Caribbean. I don't know how much they're able to collect uh, because again they they can't let it get to shore in order to do that. Otherwise, it it dies off within two or three days, and they they don't get the benefit that they're looking for in terms of it being a, a carbon sequestration. So. Um, the, I think the, the main thing that we have been talking about uh, when, when I discussed this with the Department of Interior in particular is to see whether or not we can, um, we can use it as like an additive for a fuel source or something like that. You're talking about repurposing? Uh, un- yeah. Well, until we can actually find a way to repurpose the material and make it kind like somehow make it profitable. Like you're not going to see this major, major investment and, and it'll just be labor intensive work to, to clean it, get it out of the water area and that sort of thing. Um, for us to remove it in volumes before it actually makes its way onto shore, they, there has to be a way to repurpose it um, and repurposing it means a lot of fresh water, something that we don't currently have. So, uh, again, that's the other part of it as well. Well, you know, uh, Louis Sylvester had brought this to our attention, uh, uh, highlighted it. We actually had a conversation with a, a young man. I think his name is Mr. Leon uh, from Dominican Republic. Um, so this is a big issue. And then um, there was a company from England that had um, headquartered down in St. Vincent. So the, the, it is getting the requisite attention it deserves for obvious reasons. It's, it's been uh, uh, inundating our waters uh, for the last, like, 12, 13, 14 years, uh, working its way up from South America, right, from Brazil, some area down there. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's, I'm just trying to recollect, you know, the, the brain ain't as sharp as it was when we were young. But, um, you know, uh, it is something that we can't ignore, and it's impacting the entire, the Americas, right, the, 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 the Latin America Correct. Uh, South America, the Caribbean, um, Southeast uh, mainland. Southeast, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so it is something that we need to take advantage of. So I'm glad that um, um, you know there is conversations and we're looking at ways and uh, identifying resources to address um, uh, how we remediate uh, this this matter and then hopefully repurpose uh, at some point down the road with the requisite research and uh, resources. Libraries, that's yeah. my pet peeve. Uh, how we go? How, how the libraries come in? With respect to projects, and I want—I guess some good news for you. The commissioner, I mean the university president, uh, David Hall, uh, has you know stated on this show um, he would be willing to be a part of um, an initiative to get our young people um, to get back into the libraries and have a greater greater appreciation for a valuable asset like our public libraries. Give us some good news, if you will. Sure. So uh, to start, you know, in um, we we did the ribbon cutting for the Sproul Library in June in in uh, in St. John, and we opened the facility in August. And so we've been operating Tuesdays through Saturdays in St. John. Uh, we've had several school groups come through. We've had um, some discussions, uh, like we had a, a natural resource discussion, uh, turtle talk with the um, folks on St. John. Um, I believe it was in September. Uh, We've had a couple of outreach events that have taken place. Uh, We have 
uh, story time for children at 11 a.m. every Saturday. So things in St. John have been working uh, well. We, we have had a, a couple of glitches here and there with the infrastructure, but for the most part, we've been open and, and providing services. So uh, we were happy to get St. John back online. Very happy to have two St. Jonians working uh, who live on St. John working in the library as well. That, that was one of the major goals uh, because there's there's less interruption if there's uh, no travel in between the islands needed over a period of time. Uh, the next facility that we're going to open is um, Florence Williams in Christiansted. Um, we, we had hoped that we were going to be able to open in December, um, but there were some things that needed to be fully addressed that are currently being addressed now. I don't know if, if on the radio program the pinging of my phone has happened, but that's actually the contractor inside of the uh, the facility right now just sending me photos of what's taking place, things that he's seeing inside of there now. Um, but our goal is to open Fl- Florence Williams in February. Okay, that's good news. I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, Peterson, the construction started however um the once the the contractor got in there and started to remove and open up the envelope um there is more damage than what was originally anticipated in the contract and so now um in order to fix these things that have taken place on the interior of the walls before we seal them up we're going to have to find the available funding to make that happen um so that's going to delay we had hoped to open peterson in uh in june of this year um if we can find if if we can find the money in the next several months uh then we would be pushing this back about 90 days to sometime in september um but it's it's a significant amount of money that we have to find to 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 properly address the issues. Uh, we don't want to seal back the, the walls and, and leave those things lingering in there because it just, it, you know, I, I, I'm just that, not that type of person and the contractor is not that type of contractor either. So, um, you know, we want to address that and, and it's going to take a significant amount of money to do that. Uh, lastly, the, the Charles Turnbull Library, the repairs, have started, but we have been plagued by a number of uh, other infrastructure issues, particularly electrical issues uh, there that have caused some um, delays in the project. Um, the the building itself has been hit by lightning a couple of times. What? And that's because the, the lightning rods that were on the roof were damaged from the storm. And so... Um, it, it has caused the ca- delays to the contractor because now there's no power. He can't control the climate for the mold remediation that we were doing, all of these things that you need power for. So um, we're trying to address the core electrical issue in order for us to then get back to the construction. Uh, we're still looking at September as our time frame for being able to have that facility open as well. Okay. But these delays are, you know, they, they, they were unforeseen and 
um, they they cause real real significant problems in terms of the contractors being able to push forward. So these these additional funding. I mean, you you do set aside funding for some change orders, but when they're coming in at now forty percent of what your original contract was, that that's exceeding the budget, and and it's not like that money is just lying around either. So. Uh, you know, if you, you put $3 million into a project, you hope that you can get it done properly, everything, and then all of a sudden now this other issue happens and it's causing delays. So it's unfortunate. Finally, um, what are you hoping to hear from the governor as it relates to DPNR Monday night? You know, um, I, <laughs> I have my own selfish thing, but uh, the I, I think overall what I... What I like to hear the state of the territory really and truly is the, the things that affect the people of the Virgin Islands as a whole. Mm-hmm. And what are the initiatives as a whole? Uh, because, you know, DPNR does a lot of things project-based. And it, overall, it, it's better for the territory, but it may only impact a, a certain amount of people uh, in very specific ways. But... Um, you know, I, I think when we hear the state of the territory, we want to hear about the programs that are affecting us as a whole. Those usually involve even some of our uh, our, our our semi-autonomous agencies like WAPA and those types of things. So, um, you know, we we really are pushing forward. I know the governor's been working really, really hard to to have HUD approve our purchase of all the VTOL. Uh, properties and, and just be the owner of that facility and, and no longer have this issue with, with VTOL. Um, I know that we, through the, the Office of the Governor, through the Division of Energy, uh, has recently secured a grant. Um, and it's a, if I'm not mistaken, it's a significant amount of money. And so this now plays into power and electricity generation for everybody um to diversify so if if we are able to execute um the program which director kyle fleming put together called solar for all um this would be a way to expand the footprint of solar not on virgin land but rather on homes and still be able to um still be able to assist WAPA as opposed to coming off WAPA and then those that do not have to continue to bear the burden and increase for the maintenance because, you know, the more customers WAPA has, the better. Uh, So we just can't leave them, you know, everybody's going for solar and then leaving them and then the entity uh, uh, is, is just putting all of its costs on those that don't have a choice but to remain. Mm-hmm. So a big big projects like that, I know there's been a lot of uh, interest in, in getting more solar as well as wind in the territory um, to, to, again, you know, these are projects that, that affect the entire Virgin Islands community because, you know, we have to admit it, we, the people of the Virgin Islands, own WAPA. That's right. So, That's right. Um, you know, we we have to do what is right and necessary for it. Uh, you know, and it and it's very painful. Uh, I'm somebody who 
for a long period of time, my house was on rotational power yeah, as well. Yeah, so yeah. I, I experienced those interruptions and know what that feels like. Um, but, you know, we have to stay the course, get everything correct. Hopefully these Wartzilla generators get installed uh, without any further delays. Uh, but then we're also able to do some municipal solar and wind into the system. And so we, we just now are completely diversifying the grid 100%. So. Kamesh, awesome, awesome articulation there, what we're dealing with, uh, diversification. Thank you very much for giving some time. Looking forward to, to seeing you when um, WTJX puts the camera on you when the governor talks about DPNR on Monday night. Appreciate that. All right, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. And um, what? Just one last thing. I like to say. I, I think it's it's necessary uh, to to do this every time I, I speak publicly. And if if somebody is interested in natural resources, you have a biological science degree, um, you have an interest in being an inspector, electrical, plumbing. Um, please see DPNR. I think the governor says it over and over again that we have a we have a shortage of people to execute government services and so if we have persons that have those credentials here locally or you're interested in coming home or you have a friend who went to college with you and say why well, i would love to live in the vi and they have those credentials you know we we've, we've got to do our part to bring people in and, and again for me it's about executing services for the people at the virgin Islands. thank you commissioner and, and good plug for working at dpnr Great show today, everyone. Thank you for joining us. And I believe um, um, the Latry office uh, has a closure this afternoon, as uh, right now as well. So look into that. Um, talk to you tomorrow. Be good and be safe. Bye-bye. The views and opinions expressed on Analyze This are entirely those of the on-air participants and do not reflect those of the station's board, management, staff, or underwriters. As the news gets more complex and changes through the day, you need more than just a quick headline check. Here and Now keeps you connected to your world between Morning Edition and All Things Considered as the news and the people shaping it are changing in real time. I'm Robin Young. Follow along on Here and Now, NPR News, weekday afternoons. From 2 to 4 on WTJX-FM, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. These days, people go to great lengths to shed the stress of daily life. There's acupuncture, deep tissue massage, meditation, yoga. At All Things Considered, we offer our own type of healing, invigorating news stories that span the rainbow of human experience. Nourish your mind and escape from the ordinary. Weekdays on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 5 to 8 p.m. right here on WTJX-FM 93.1.